Yeah, so All Saints, we're still going to be in Genesis this morning. And I want to begin with a quote from a saint. This is John of Damascus. He wrote these words, The saints must be honored as friends of Christ and children and heirs of God. Let us carefully observe the manner of life of all the apostles, martyrs, ascetics, and just men who announced the coming of the Lord, and let us emulate their faith, charity, hope, zeal, life, patience under suffering, and perseverance unto death, so that we may also share their crowns of glory. End quote. Tomorrow, as I have said, is the feast of all saints. And the saint, the word saint, it means holy and pure. That is, made pure and set apart for the work of God. A saint is any person who is in union with Jesus Christ on account of the work of God, the grace of God, and received by faith. This person is set apart for the, the work of God, the glory of God. And this individual would be someone who has been redeemed from sin, made pure by the blood of the Lamb. They have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. So if you're here this morning and your faith is in the work of Jesus Christ, you share the life of God with Him, you are a saint. You're all a saint. On the Feast of All Saints, we celebrate saints who have departed this life those who have been faithful in Jesus and have passed away. And we leave the final judgment to the Lord, but we look on their lives and their examples and their proclamation of faith, and we say, saint. There's much to learn as we study the saints, and I want to echo St. John of Damascus as we begin this morning. We learn from the saints in their theological knowledge. Much of the heritage of the saints is helping us put words around a right view of God. We learn from their lives of piety and devotion, what it means to live a life in Jesus Christ. We learn even from their sacrifices, as many of the saints that we celebrate, even in our liturgical calendar, are saints who were martyred for the faith. So we learn through their examples of suffering. And this morning, we're going to carefully observe the life of Saint Abraham. We might call him Abram, because his name hasn't been changed yet. But Saint Abraham, because Paul tells us in Romans, anyone who is in union with Jesus Christ by faith is a son or a daughter of Abraham. And so he's a forerunner of those who would put faith in Jesus Christ. Hebrews says that Abraham, he's counted righteousness because of faith. He's accounted as righteous. And the same is true for us as well. So we're looking at St. Abraham while he lived near Mamre in chapter 14 of Genesis, verses 1 through 16, what Dave so kindly read for us again this week with all those names and places. And so if you have the Holy Scripture, go ahead and crack it open to Genesis 14. If you, if you don't, the, the text is in your liturgy. And if you're like, I really wish I had my Bible, there are some on the table over there. You can grab that. A final option would be to turn it on, uh, your Bible, on your phone. Or unless you have the whole thing memorized, and then you can just pull it from memory. Those are all sufficient. But as we look at Abram this morning, we see that saints 
fight for righteousness even when the world is at war around them. Okay? Saints fight for righteousness even when the world is at war around them. That's the big idea that we're looking at this morning. And as we begin thinking about what does it mean to fight for righteousness, what do we mean about the world at war around us? The first thing I want to tell you, and there's two main uh, sub-points in the sermon this morning if you take notes. The first thing you have to realize as a saint, as someone who's called out by God, saved by the mercy and the grace and the work of Jesus Christ, as a saint, we still faced trials and struggles and tribulation as the world infected with sin wars and rebels around us. We are not exempt from trial. Coming to Christ does not equal a pain-free life. In verses 1 through 9, I'm not gonna, we're not going to look at all of those verses again and read through them uh, We've all got it in our brains. But Moses explains, really, a region-wide war that breaks out between nine kings and nine kingdoms. And what we have is, in the Transjordan, there is the Dead Sea is down here in the south, and there are five kingdoms, mainly Sodom and Gomorrah, but there are five kingdoms who have agreed with or made some kind of alliance with Four kings, specifically Ketalomar in the north, the king of Elam, up here, and there's all these kings and kingdoms up here that are in agreement, they're working together. Down here in the south, they have this agreement, they're working together, there's an alliance. But then, led by the king of Sodom, and we know Sodom is a wicked city, a rebellious city, led by this king, all the kings and kingdoms down here in the south, they rebel against Ketalomar. That's what happens. That's the, the 12th, the 13th year of this agreement. There's a rebellion. And then it says in the 14th year, the king, Ketalomar, and his companions up north, four kingdoms in total, travel down south. He leads a campaign, a war against those near the Dead Sea. And so the text says we had four kings versus five kings, four from the north. Five in the south, and they meet in the valley of Siddam. And so we have this huge, massive, region-encompassing war, a battle. This is the first time in Scripture we read of a war, or, or something like this, a conquest, or something. Sin is growing, and it's leading to these battles and these, these wars. Look at verse 11, then. In verse 8, it begins telling us what happens. Catalomer wins in verse 11. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. That is, the invading armies from the north, who had one less king than the southern kings, defeated the southern kings and plundered their cities. And then they lead this quest through the land. And they're taking provisions and they're taking people with them. They were victorious in defeating the rebellious Sodom and Gomorrah and the other kings with them. They experience a devastating defeat, so much so that they're even falling in pits. They're running for their lives. 
reckless abandon, retreat at all costs. And so they're not even looking down where they're running and they're falling into pits. Isn't that interesting? Okay, a war involving these kings in the world is bursting out. But if we read verses 1 through 11 again, we would notice a specific name missing in those first 11 verses. The story of Genesis for the last two and a half chapters, you might say, has been about one man, has been following the story of one guy, and then we read 11 verses, a ton of information, and his name is missing. Whose name is missing? Abram, Abraham. How does this pertain to Abraham, this, this war that has burst out? What's going on in this situation, in this war? The world is boiling over in conflict, and so far it seems that Abram is not affected. But just because God has moved into covenant with Abram does not mean Abram is saved from the trial, unaffected by what's breaking out in the world. Look at verse 12. Here comes Abram. He comes into the story here. They also took Lot the son of Abram's brother. Now we know how this pertains to Abram, God's covenant child. Now we know how it pertains. Lot has been taken, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Last week, Father Michael covered chapter 13, and you'll remember that Abram and Lot separated from one another because Abram said, hey, both of our families are growing so big, this area can't support both of us, so we need to spread out. And it tells us that Lot looked to Sodom and thought, I want to go there. That's where I want to dwell. It says he pitched his tent there. He made his home there. But what's so interesting is verse 13 in chapter 13 makes sure that we know Sodom was a wicked city. And the text says the sin against the Lord was great in that city. And even still, Lot goes there. That's where he made his home. He chose to dwell in the land of unrighteousness when Abram, the father, the patriarch who has been called by God, who has faith, he's living in the land of righteousness, but Sodom chooses unrighteousness and he becomes a victim of war. He has been taken captive along with everyone else in Sodom. And so Abram is brought into this conflict in the world. The world is warring, unrighteous people are rebelling and fighting, and Abram is struck with trial when his nephew is taken, taken captive. When the world is warring, God's people are not exempt from trial. Sin, rebellion, and unrighteousness have so infected the world that trials abound, and we are never told that in our relationship with God, we will be free from these trials. Peter, James, and John in their epistles all write about the experience that Christians have in their trials. Consider all trials an opportunity for joy, my brothers. New Testament is filled with explaining we will have trials. Jesus tells his disciples this should be an expectation of following me. Trials, struggles, 
we're not exempt. St. Abram can confirm this. St. Paul, Peter, James, and John can affirm this truth who all suffered a martyr's death. I have this obsession with Thomas Cranmer. He can also attest to this who was burned at the stake for affirming that salvation is by faith alone. He can tell you, hey, you're going to have some trials in the world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer can attest to this truth who, as the world erupted in a Second World War, he fought for what was right with other Christians around him. The, they weren't sheltered from the effects of the world and the wars. Any saint who has died and gone to glory can echo down through time and remind us, hey, you're going to experience struggle in life. Trial in life. And today the world is consumed with various conflicts. Not all wars, but various conflicts caused by rebellious and sinful hearts. Christian brothers are being arrested for holding church services as the world encroaches on God's people. I know Christian brothers and sisters who have lost their jobs as the world seeks to tell them how to live. Your trials, whatever struggle or trial you face, it brings you into communion with all the saints before us who have walked this world even through trial. And you see, our suffering for the sake of Christ in this world also brings us into deep union with Jesus, who is not only the forerunner of your glory, but the forerunner of suffering. And so we are going to experience trials of, this, this New Testament says, of various kinds. That's how it's explained. We're, we're going to walk through difficulty. There are going to be seasons of challenge. And so the question we ask then is, how do saints respond in the trial, in the difficulty when the world is at war around us? And we learn from St. Abram that we are to use our means to fight for righteousness. Look at verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. Exegetical note, that's the first time the word Hebrew shows up in Scripture. Hebrew. Usually it's used of a non-Israelite talking about an Israelite who worships this God, Yahweh. So you call someone a Hebrew, you're saying, he worships that God, Yahweh. We might say, the God, Yahweh. And that fits the context, because what is Abram doing in Mamre? Do you remember from chapter 13? What's he up to? He's worshiping Yahweh. He's building altars. He's calling on the name of the Lord. There's a war erupting around him, but he's praising God in Mamre. He's worshiping God. And even the worshiper of God, though, he's not unaffected by what's going on. It comes into his life. So how does the worshiper respond? Skip to verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men. 
He has a militia in his house. And it says, born in his house, 318 of them, and went and pursued as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions. And also, he brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Lest we forget, Lot had joined himself to the wicked people of Sodom. He had chosen to live there. He had made that decision. I'm going to go to the wicked place, Sodom. That's where I want to live. In Genesis 19, verse 1, we learn that Lot, even after this, he goes back to Sodom, and he becomes a citizen of Sodom. That's where he wants to be. It's like, hey, you're captive because of the decisions you have made. Good luck. Figure it out. This is your fault. I mean, that could have been Abram's perspective. I told you not to go there. They're wicked people. But that's not how Abram responds. You see, the Bible throughout the whole canon is abundantly clear that brothers and relatives have obligations, moral obligations to one another. Remember, Cain is indicted by God because Cain did not keep an eye out for his brother's well-being. That's pretty early in Genesis. In Leviticus chapter 25, the Israelites are told that it is law that they provide for their brothers who are in need. And Paul writes to Timothy, he says, listen, if you don't care for your relatives, you are worse than an unbeliever. That's the words that Paul uses. John says in his epistles, he says, it is impossible to love God without sacrificially loving your brother. Now, obviously, there the context is of brothers in Christ, but this teaching that we have obligations to our relatives, to our brothers and sisters, this is throughout all of Scripture. And Abram knows this. My relative has been taken, and so he moves into action. Because of his relationship with God, he is compelled to go after Lot. In verse 16, we read the word kinsman. And that word in Hebrew that's translated kinsman, most often it's translated brother. And so we think maybe Moses uses this word to show us this close relationship they had. His relative has been taken. Abram has a moral obligation to become a hero in this story and to rescue his relative who's taken captive in a wicked from a wicked city. So Abram uses his means available to him. He gathers his soldiers in his house. He travels north to Dan. He finds Ketelomer. Uh, keep in mind as well that this king of Elam has been put up as a, a warring king, a mighty force. He has four kingdoms. They fight five kingdoms. And the text says they destroyed them. They, they beat them so bad they're falling in pits and they're taking all their possessions. This is a mighty foe. Undefeated champion of the world. And Abram's got how many soldiers? Three, exactly 318. And he also has a scheme. Attack at night. Spread the, the, the forces, right? And, and what we find out next week is that this victory is given to Abram by the glory, for the glory and by the grace of God. It's God's victory. But still, Abram takes what he has and he goes, I don't care what it's going to cost me, I have to get my brother. I have to get my relative, my nephew. I've got to get him back. 
And so he goes after them. This is a different Abram than the one who got faced. Remember, he faced a plague in the promised land. What did he do? He fled. He ran to Egypt. Here he faces a trial. And what does he do? With faith, he pursues what is right. He goes after his relatives. So I ask, saints, in a world filled with tribulation and struggles, which we're not exempt from, are we using our means and our resources, our time, our influence to fight for what is right? Here's some examples that I just thought of in my own life. When the world seeks to take our children's minds and attention away from the good things of God, do we fight with all the means God has given us as loving parents to show them the good things of God? Do we fight for our children in a world that is fighting for them? Then I thought, when the world seeks to dictate when and how God's people can gather together, do we fight with the wisdom that God has given us to not neglect the gathering of saints? When our marriage is threatened, do we look to Christ and his sacrificial, loving example and then say, Lord, help me love my wife like this. Help me love my husband like this and fight for our marriages. Do we join together with Hope Women's Center here in Maricopa to aid them in their fight to help women choose the righteous choice of life? At the workplace, when co-workers choose to gossip or lie or share in vulgarity, do we, in union with Jesus, seek Jesus in those moments and fight for what is right? Do we who live with Christ, fight for Christ. Church history is filled with stories of men and women of God who have sacrificed in order to pursue what is of Jesus. I thought of a couple. St. Sebastian. He's a saint celebrated by the Roman Catholic Church. In the third century, Diocletian was the emperor, and he was leading the largest persecution of the church uh, maybe until our time. He's leading a giant persecution of the church, killing Christians all over the empire, and especially in the army. He's, you can't be a Christian and be in the army because they're actually losing soldiers because these Christians are leaving the Roman army. And this guy, Sebastian, he was a warrior. He was gifted in that way, and he was a Christian. And he thought, hey, if I use the gifts that God has given me, physically to get into the army and to get up into like captain or something like this, I can protect my brothers. That's exactly what he did. He joins the army, he gets high up in rank, and he starts defending and protecting his brothers in Christ. No, you can't kill him. Diocletian finds out and has him killed for doing, for, for what he was doing and protecting his brothers. Another saint, uh, Catherine Drexler, was a minister in, the North, in North America. She was born to an extremely wealthy family. And, and when, she, when her parents passed away, she inherited an immense amount of wealth, especially for that time, ridiculous amount of money. She gave every cent away to bring mercy to those in need. Every cent gave it away. I was going to say something about Cranmer again, but I'll skip that. St. Abram was not exempt from the trials of the world. 
But as a covenant child of God, he fought for righteousness, even when trials prevailed, using whatever was at his disposal to go after his nephew Lot. And in Maricopa, we are the saints of God, made pure by the blood of Jesus, called out for the glory of God to be administers of Christ in this city. But church, we do not simply follow in the footsteps of men and women like Augustine or people we've talked about this morning. When we fight for what is right, we actually follow in the footsteps of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In the text this morning, Abram was the hero rescuing the captive Lot. And you know, in the, in the big story, we are the captives. We are the ones imprisoned in need of a rescue. We have pitched our tents in wicked cities. We have chosen unrighteousness. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus says in John chapter 8, If you commit a sin, you are a slave to sin. You are in need of rescue. We've rebelled, not against Catalomer, but against God Almighty with our decisions to pursue ungodliness instead of righteousness. And in this story, in the true story, Jesus, who is the offspring of Abram, he is the rescuer. For when we were living in sin, when we were in chain to sin, when we were not and could not go after righteousness, Jesus, the righteousness of God, came after us. He came into a world filled with rebellion and trial, and he used all the means at his disposal as fully God and fully man to rescue us from our captivity. And he didn't rescue us by waging a war against Catalomer, but by waging a war against the prince of darkness, by waging a war against our sin, by waging a war against death. And he lived a perfect life in the victory of God. And then on this rescue mission, he gives this life on the cross. And Colossians 2 says it was there that all of our sins, all of our captivity was nailed forever. On the cross, the righteousness of God fought for and won by Jesus Christ becomes ours by faith. In union with Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection, we are set free from our enslavement to unrighteousness. What did Lot do to receive his salvation? Well, it's not a trick question. What did Lot do in the narrative to be saved from Catalomer? What did he do? Nothing, not a single thing. He just had an uncle who loved God and who came after him. And the same is true. Our captivity is broken, not because of anything we do. You see, we just have a brother, a savior, a maker, who loves us so deeply that he would give his life to save us from our captivity. And then it's only here in the union that we share with Jesus by faith, freed from our enslavement to sin, that then we become saints who through our union with Jesus can go and fight for righteousness. And, 
and we're sent out like Abram. We're sent into this world that's at war with the good news of freedom from sin by faith in the work of Jesus Christ.